Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's Ocean Allison podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more per episode via my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com slash oceanallison. And for those that haven't, visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to watch my video and to learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to this week's episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Dr. David Schiffman. David is a shark conservation biologist at the University of Miami, utilizing social media to spread the message of why sharks matter. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Allison. Yeah, glad to have you on today. So, David, you're one of the most well-known voices for sharks. And in the last few years, Business Insider and Huffington Post have both named you as one of the top scientists in the world to follow on Twitter. So you've really kind of distinguished yourself as this reputable spokesperson for sharks. What I want to ask you first is what made you fall in love with the sharks in the first place? You know, where does this passion slash obsession, some might say, with sharks stem from? My parents would certainly say obsession. (laughs) Uh, I've, I've been interested in sharks as long as my family can remember. And I I grew up pretty far from the ocean in Pittsburgh, but I feel like uh, most kids go through either a shark thing or a dinosaur thing, and I actually did both of those and had to and chose sharks. Uh, But I had a pretty huge collection of dinosaur toys that we've since given to neighbor children. But I've been uh, fascinated by sharks as long as my family can remember. In my my master's defense. My parents gave my advisor uh, pictures of me as a toddler in a shark shirt playing with shark toys. <laughs> uh, and I got interested in them just, I, I guess, how, how most kids do through visiting the aquarium, through watching them on TV, through reading books. And it just sort of never went away. And so, you know, from that childhood love slash obsession with sharks, you went on to get your undergrad degree studying stingrays, your master's degree studying sharks, and you actually just recently completed your PhD studying sharks at the University of Miami, like I mentioned. So you've done a lot of shark science in Florida as well as all over the world. With your PhD at the University of Miami, you were doing research in the R.J. Dunlap Marine Conservation Program with your advisor, Dr. Neil Hammerschlag. Can you kind of describe for listeners what was a typical day in the field, you know, out on the boat, not so much in the lab, out on the boat? What's a typical day like for you and the other researchers that are part of Neil Hammerschlag's lab? The best part of field research is there really isn't a typical day, but I can give you the broad strokes of what we do in the the UM Shark Research and Conservation Program. Um, And this happens 70 to 100 days a year we're out in the field. That's one of the best parts about living in South Florida is you have year-round access to your field site and the animals are here year-round. But I wake up around 6, the boat leaves around 8.30 or 9, but I get ready, we go to the lab, we pick up the equipment and then we bring everything to the boat. And on almost every trip, we have a group with us. 
sometimes it's a local high school science class. We work a lot with the Miami-Dade public school system. Sometimes it's a just local environmental club of some kind. So we, we bring guests on every trip, and over a 1,000 people a year come out on the boats. And we go out to our field sites. We have a variety of field sites, uh, some within Miami Harbor, some offshore a little bit. And we deploy our sampling gear with a fishing method called a drum line. It's about a, a 50-pound weight connected to a float to the surface, connected to a baited hook. And we have 10 of those. They're t totally independent from the boat. Once it's off the boat, it's not attached to the boat anymore. And we let those soak for an hour, and then we go out and check them. And if, if there's not a shark on it, we replace the bait and put it right back out. If there is a shark on it, then we do a research workup. And our guests help with everything. They help measure the sharks. They help take samples from the sharks. They get right up, up close and personal. And for many of these kids, it's the first time they've ever gotten to do anything remotely like that. I really like the outreach component of it. But we're collecting samples for something like a dozen ongoing research projects. The lab is very big, which has been really nice for me because I got to learn a lot of different research techniques from a lot of people. We have, I think, six master's students now and 20-ish undergraduate interns. And depending on what, where we went or what we were catching or which master student was on the boat on a given day, we would be collecting different kinds of data that there's some data that we, we always collect no matter what. And it's a pretty full day. It's a lot of fun. There is no typical catch. Every time it's a little different. But I think in total we've caught 15 or 16 different species, at least one member of. And Neil has a lot of GPS telemetry satellite tags that we put on some of the rarer species or species that are a particular focus of research. And anyone can actually track our GPS satellite tag sharks by going to the lab website, sharktagging.com. So, David, I was going to ask you, what is it like to be a shark scientist? Because I think that that's something that many people in the, quote, general public would think to ask. Um, and then I, I thought about it a bit more, and I feel like you in many ways, have taken shark science to kind of another level in terms of the way that you look at shark science in such an interdisciplinary approach. So I think a better question to ask you is, what do you feel have been the most important or valuable steps that you've taken kind of outside of the normal science box? Well, I, th I think the most valuable thing for me personally that I've done outside of traditional scientific research has been science communication training. Uh, I used to be very involved with the Science Online organization before that shut down. Uh, and that's where I learned how to use Twitter and things like that to the, the way that I do now. Uh, and I eventually I, I hosted my own Science Online conference at the University of Miami focusing on marine science and conservation. That was called Science Online Oceans back in 2013. Um, and a version of that has now been ad adopted by the Society for Conservation Biology. And, but that's been really valuable. It's been sort of understood within the field of shark research forever that a problem facing sharks is that the general public misunderstands sharks and are afraid of sharks. And shark researchers has, have been ahead of many fields in recognizing the importance of public education about our study species. I am certainly not the first to do this. I've done this a lot on leveraging social media and leveraging blogs and things like that in a way that hasn't been done on this larger scale before. But, but there have been people for decades that have been doing public advocacy and outreach and education about shark research and conservation. It's almost like shark scientists, a bigger hurdle for them is that the public has this 
false image of sharks in their minds. 24% of all species of sharks and their relatives are listed on the IUCN red list as threatened with extinction, which is a huge percentage, a huge number of species. But when most people hear that, they think, good, what can we do to get 100% of them threatened? Sharks are scary. Sharks are bad. And that's, that's really not true. Yeah, in many ways, public apathy and misunderstanding and fear on a large scale is a significant contributor to shark conservation problems. Yeah. And so in 2014, you were named the Marine Science Educator of the Year by the Florida Marine Science Educators Association, which is an amazing honor. And that was largely due in part to that Ocean Science Communication Conference that you held that you mentioned, as well as, you know, the 28,000 followers that you have on Twitter that you reach every single day and present ocean science and shark science education to them. One thing that you've done in terms of, you know, you mentioned utilizing Twitter and social media has been something really great that you've done kind of outside the normal science box. I think taking it even a step further, one thing that you've done that was really amazing to me is that you've actually published several scientific papers in the last few years on the importance of utilizing social media and Twitter for scientists. You know, you've actually done the science on utilizing Twitter for science. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the importance of utilizing social media for a scientist trying to communicate their research? Uh, well, there, it depends somewhat on your field. Some fields are, are more involved in public education and outreach than others. Conservation biology, environmental science is a big one in that regard. But I believe in general that it matters if the public is science literate and aware of important problems facing society for which science, scientific research is going to be a solution. So I, I think it's part of my job to do this. I do not think that every scientist needs to do this. This debate comes up every year or so. Someone writes an ill-informed op-ed and science Twitter goes crazy yelling back and forth about it. But I don't think that every scientist needs to do this. Uh, some scientists probably would not enjoy it. Some scientists, their skill set lies elsewhere. So I don't think everyone needs to do this, but I think there needs to be a place for some people to do it, and it needs to be more valued within traditional academia. A paper that I had come out this past year where I was a co-author, this was an interesting one because it, the other authors on this paper are people I've never met in person. I knew the lead author, Kimmy Collins, entirely through Twitter. She's a graduate student in New Zealand. We've never been in the same country. And that was cool to be able to do to co-write a paper basically with people I'd met through Twitter. But one of the things we found is that lots of scientists who do use Twitter believe that their colleagues do not recognize the value of it. Everyone I know who has used it and has given it a good faith effort and has tried it, even if they don't end up loving it themselves, they say, all right, I see why this would be useful. But there are other people who think, oh, Twitter is just that stupid place for celebrity gossip or where Donald Trump says scary things and they don't bother to learn the actual professional benefits of this. It's been enormously professionally valuable for me. I'm on the board of directors of the American Elasma Bank Society and I'm the youngest member by a lot. I'm on leadership positions in the Society for Conservation Biology. These positions came about through my online communicating to the public experience. In other words, for you, it's been very valuable, and for many other scientists, it is and could be if they started to utilize it. But I agree with you. I don't think every scientist needs to be utilizing social media. I think 
I do believe that most scientists should be doing some kind of outreach education. Maybe it doesn't have to be through social media, but I think it needs to happen on both ends. Scientists need to become more interested in communicating their science, and then the public needs to become more interested in hearing what scientists have to say. Yes, and it would be great if the public were more interested. And I find that the people that I talk to, even if they're not sort of the stereotypical science geek, they are interested. Maybe it hasn't been presented to them in a way that it is interesting, but that's not really on the public. Marketing matters. Marketing is a term that scientists and academics hate, but it is so important for the, the modern world. I have a brand as a scientist and science communicator. So do other scientists. They just don't call it that. And it, it matters. And we can absolutely present this stuff in a way that makes it relevant to people's lives. Perhaps not every individual study that comes out, perhaps not even every individual discipline, but the idea of using science as a method of learning more about the world with evidence, I think that's absolutely relevant to people's lives and people typically agree if it's presented to them correctly. And so another aspect of your Twitter and social media use that I want to touch on is your... I guess I could use the word battle with Shark Week, Discovery Channel's Shark Week that airs, you know, once a year. This has been something that's been highly publicized in terms of your role on the Internet, you being very outspoken about some of the programming or all of the programming on Discovery Channel's Shark Week and how it is misleading in many senses, false in many senses. Can you comment on your perception of Shark Week and its programming? Sure. Well, Shark Week represents the greatest temporary increase in public focus on any ocean issue of the year. That more people are paying attention to something related to the ocean during Shark Week than the rest of the year. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. It represents an, an incredible platform to get science and conservation and reduce misunderstanding and fear. Uh, it represents just this amazing opportunity and Shark Week Discovery used to do a great job with this. That growing up in a landlocked city, Shark Week was a big part of how I became interested in marine biology. It's all, there was always a sensationalist bent on Shark Week, but around the early 2000s, it started getting really bad. And the late 2000s, it started getting really, really bad. And that happened to be around when I was starting up on Twitter, around when Twitter was starting in general. And I started watching Shark Week specials and fact-checking them live in real time on Twitter and calling out when there was blatant inaccuracy or blatant fear-mongering. Um, this eventually came to a head with uh, – there have been these debates in political journalism this past year about fake news. Animal Planet and the Discovery Channel aired totally fake documentaries that were not advertised as fake documentaries. There was one about uh, not only – are mermaids real, but mermaids are real, and the U.S. government and the scientific community know that, and they're actively lying to you about it. If you watch this two-hour documentary, at no point in it did it say, this is totally fictional. We made this up for drama. There are no real scientists in it. They're actors. The images are fake. And if you watch the whole thing at the end of the credits, for three and a half seconds, there's a vaguely worded disclaimer. Now, several years later, every time I talk to a high school or middle school classroom, I still get questions about, are there mermaids? I saw something on the animal planet. As a science educator, that's, I just cannot deal with that. Uh, that's the, what the, When you make up things like that, what you're saying is, I don't think the real world is interesting enough to get people to pay attention and tune in. 
that's nonsense. Look at the success of, of Planet Earth, of Blue Planet, of the other BBC specials like that. All nature documentaries have a, a creative editing to make things seem more dramatic, but they're not, they didn't make up anything. Those are some of the highest rated, most watched documentaries ever. So you can absolutely do this without lying to people. Has there been a response from actually Discovery Channel to you personally about what, you, what you've presented? I've had a fairly productive back and forth back channel with some folks at Discovery for a while. And some were saying from the beginning, yeah, we agree that this is this is not why we got into nature documentary filmmaking, but this is you know the market. This is what people want, blah, blah, blah. And eventually they, I got a call and somebody said a couple years ago and somebody with Discovery said, look, we have a new president of, of Discovery. He's promised we're not going to do this anymore. We have a new head of documentaries. We're going to try to go back to the way things were. And you're free to say whatever you want, but all I'm asking is watch it with an open mind, and if you think it's better, say that it's better. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's that's totally reasonable. I, mean, I would be very happy to say, hey, this thing that I used to be really bad isn't bad anymore. You should watch it. And it turned out that it was, for the most part, much, much better. There was a real focus on science, a real focus on um, natural history and behavior, a real decline in sensationalism, and almost no made-up nonsense. So it was it was really nice to see. And that was in what, 2015 and 16 now? 2015 and 16, yes. Yeah. Um, and so kind of another aspect of your research and, and the research in the R.J. Dunlap lab at University of Miami is shark conservation and really studying what are the best methods to approach in terms of conserving shark populations, you know, in Florida as well as worldwide. So I kind of want to talk about three different categories from trophy fishing, recreational fishing, and commercial fishing. So um, in terms of trophy fishing, can you describe what your most recent scientific findings are? Sure. Uh, So trophy fishing, for anyone not familiar with that term, you can think of it as kind of like trophy hunting. I grew up in western Pennsylvania. All of my neighbors went deer hunting. Uh, and that I don't have any sort of conservation issue with that. That's that keep, helps with predator control. But if someone goes to Africa to kill the last endangered white rhino so they can hang it on their wall or whatever, that's a separate issue. That's the difference between recreational fishing and trophy fishing. With trophy fishing, you're trying to catch an officially certified biggest one ever of a particular species. And some of the rarer species, and rare is a term that the fishermen use, endangered or threatened would be the term I would use, are considered more desirable to get a trophy saying you caught the biggest one ever. Mm -hmm. And this is relatively small in volume, but when you're targeting the biggest individuals in fish, that's almost always the females. And with some species, that animal is decades old and it's the most fecund. It's with fish, how many babies you're able to have is, is proportional to how big you are. It's volume of the reproductive tract. So you're having a disproportionate impact on fish populations by targeting the biggest one ever. And we wrote a paper calling for the, the largest trophy fishing certification agency, the International Game Fish Association, calling for them to stop issuing records for IUCN red list threatened species. Because to get an IGFA record, it requires bringing the fish ashore to an official certified way station. And that does not officially say you need to kill the fish to do it, but that's sort of implied, particularly if you catch a fish offshore and need to bring it all the way inshore to weigh it. 
Yeah. And there are dozens of IUCN red lists, threatened and endangered species, that the IGFA is still issuing world records for, which leads to demand for people to go out and target the biggest one. They, they said in response to this, but we only get a few record certifications each year. Yeah, but more people are trying to do it. You don't uh, look at the lottery and say there was one person who won the lottery this year, therefore one person bought a lottery ticket. More people are trying to win this to win this prize than they ever hear about. It has in demand. They're a very prestigious organization. Kind of the other side of that is that trophy fishing is highly advertised and highly publicized. You know, when when a trophy fisherman does catch the largest of the rarest species, meaning the most reproductively viable endangered animal, um, it's publicized in a positive light, you know, oftentimes. And so that kind of brings us to the next sector of fishing that I want to talk about in terms of conservation studies that you've done, and that's recreation. So, you know, maybe kind of the average everyday fisherman sees the trophy fisherman catching a giant hammerhead shark, and then they want to go out on the beach and catch a giant hammerhead shark, and they get really excited when they do. Um, Can you talk about the harmful effects of recreational shark fishing? Uh, the issue with recreational shark fishing is that there's so many people doing it that even if each person only catches a few, it leads to relatively high catch. And this is true with recreational fishing in general. Uh, commercial fisheries, land, an individual boat will land much, much more fish. But there's tens of millions of people recreationally fishing. So even if each of them only catches a few fish, the total catch for some species can be higher. Um, and there are also some species whose populations are so low that commercial fisheries are banned for them, but you can still go recreationally fishing for them. So recreational shark fishing is enormously popular in Florida. I surveyed every uh, Florida charter boat captain. These are the people who you, you pay to go out for a half day or full day of fishing. They have those signs on the dock that advertise that they catch sharks on their website. And we found that shark fishing is one of the most in-demand activities for tourists coming to Florida to go fishing, it's one of the most expensive fishing trips that they offer. If you want to go fishing for bonefish or something, it's going to be much cheaper than going shark fishing. So it's economically important to these guys. And for the most part, I was very, very pleased with what I found. One of my favorite quotes from these captains was, the Jaws craze is over. There's a greater public consciousness towards conservation. Uh, They almost exclusively practice catch and release, uh, which is great for most species. Most species of sharks are pretty tough, and if you catch them and handle them relatively gently and release them, they're probably going to be fine. But hammerhead sharks, a lab mate of mine, Dr. Austin Gallagher, found that they are super fragile. Uh, Some fishermen joke that if you look at them funny, they'll die. They're just not good candidates for catch and release. I think his paper found that the, the critical blood chemistry changes between the shark is stressed but can recover and the shark is stressed and is going to die happen after about 40 minutes of being fought on a fishing line. And most fishermen will fight a hammerhead for much longer than that. These captains are saying, it's very important to me to have healthy shark populations. I'm concerned about declining shark populations, catch and release, green, eco-friendly business, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, we, or we may be targeting these hammerheads because people really want to see them and they get really excited when they see them. They're, they're trying, but maybe they're contradicting themselves a little bit. I think there's progress here, which is good. It's good to see that 
people are already saying, I want to help. It's easier to get from, you want to help that specific thing you're doing could maybe be changed a little. It's easier to do that than to say, you don't want to help. Let's get you to want to help. So that first step is there and that's good. Yeah. And so in, in moving from recreational fishing to commercial fishing, in terms of fishermen that are making their living off of fishing for sharks, what have you found in terms of your scientific research is the best method to utilize in terms of conserving sharks in relation to commercial fishing? Well, I, I didn't work too much with commercial fisheries other than other stakeholder perceptions of commercial fisheries. One thing I found uh, with, with one group of recreational fishermen, of shark fishermen, is they, they felt that, yeah, sharks are absolutely in trouble, but it's all because of the commercial fishing. So nothing I do matters, so nothing I do should be restricted. I should be able to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how management works, not what the best available data shows. Again, one individual recreational angler does much has much less of an impact uh, on the population than a com- one commercial fishing vessel, but there's so many more recreational anglers out there, so that the impact is not just from one person. What I surveyed of expert shark researchers, members of the American Elasma Bank Society and other professional societies, to ask them what they think the best available management policy out there is. There's been this big debate in the conservation advocacy world lately about is it possible to have a sustainable fishery for sharks at all? Is that a thing that exists uh, or can exist? Or should we just focus on trying to ban all shark fishing? There's uh, things like shark sanctuaries get a lot of of media attention. Uh, Shark fin bans people are talking about now trying to ban the sale of shark fins everywhere in the United States. Uh, So there are people trying to ban or heavily restrict shark fishing in general Uh, Whereas other fisheries management tries to focus on promoting sustainable fisheries. And I asked shark researchers, what do you think about this? I I sort of knew that this was the case to some extent, but the the degree of it was surprising to me. About 85% of my expert researcher survey respondents believe that sustainable shark fisheries are possible. About 80% believe that it is happening in some places in the world today, and 90% believe that we should be trying to aim for sustainable fisheries exploitation of sharks instead of trying to ban fisheries entirely. And and why do you think that is? Well, I think it has to do with the way that the fisheries are managed in the U.S. under the Magnuson-Stevens Act. The government agencies are legally required to promote sustainable fisheries, and it's worked pretty well. We have very little overfishing in the U.S., and some things that were previously overfished have started to recover under the science-based management plans. Uh, that have been put into place because of this. So it absolutely can work in some places. The issue is the examples that my survey respondents provided of sustainable fisheries management policies for sharks all came from the developed world, places where there is significant management infrastructure in place and research infrastructure in place and enforcement infrastructure in place. In somewhere like a, a, a developing world, like a South Pacific island, they're not going to have those resources in place. And therefore, if you don't have those resources in place, it can be much harder to get sustainable fisheries management. And in in cases like that, a total ban on fishing may be the the most prudent outcome. And so I guess my last question for you, David, uh, before we wrap up the podcast episode is, what do you want to most say to people about sharks? 
Um, I know you have had a very long career thus far and you've got a long career ahead of you learning more about sharks and educating people more about sharks. But, you know, right now in, in this phase of your career, you've just completed your PhD. What is the most important thing you want people to know about sharks? Well, the, the most important things for people to know about sharks are that they're really not something that you need to worry about. If you've been in the ocean, there's been a shark near you and it did not bother you. Sharks are e ecologically and economically important animals. Amer we are better off with healthy shark populations than we are without them. And some species of sharks are in significant conservation trouble. Uh, again, 24% of all known species are IUCN red list threatened. And the, the, perhaps the most important thing is there are ways that you can help. If you're concerned about sharks and want to help them, there are ways that you can help. But don't try to make up your own way to help. This is something I got on and on about on social media that people seem to think they, they read an article that sharks are in trouble and they're well-intentioned and they think, wow, that's bad. I'm going to fix it without getting any education in how policymaking works or how science works or how advocacy works. And they, it's totally wasted effort. Instead, people should contact existing experts from the scientific community, from the environmental advocacy community, and say, I care, I have free time, I want to help, what can I do? Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel without any knowledge of how wheel making works. And so what are those things? Well, I try to post ways on my personal social media every now and then, or whenever something comes up, ways for people to get involved. In the U.S., we have a very participatory fisheries management plan. Whenever there's a new regulation that's proposed in the Federal Register, they take comments from the public. And if you write an intelligently worded public comment, they are legally required to consider it and respond to it publicly. So do that rather than these goofy internet petitions that people make up on their own uh, from change.org or any of that nonsense. The government is not required to even look at those. But if you use the existing system, they are required to look at it and consider it and respond to it. Uh, so I try to post specific ways for people to get involved. Some other reputable conservation organizations do it as well. Any of these groups could use a little money. Any of these groups could use you sharing links. But don't share wrong information. Don't try to make up things on your own. It's great that you want to help. It's great that you're trying to help. But if you don't know what you're doing, you're much more likely to cause harm than to help. Okay, so for listeners, if you have been interested in what uh, Dr. David Schiffman and I have talked about today on the podcast in terms of his shark research at the University of Miami and his use of social media and his research on conservation and all these types of things, I will be linking to David's Twitter, his infamous Twitter, his Facebook, and his newly instated Instagram accounts, and that is all at Why Sharks Matter. I'll be linking to those when I post this podcast episode, and I will also be linking to Southern Fried Science, and that's a blog site that David is a active writer for, so you guys can connect with David through those channels, read more about what he is putting out into the world in terms of shark science and conservation. And so, David, I want to thank you so much for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean, being a spokesperson for sharks and shark conservation, and doing it in a way and on a scale that really I think no other shark scientist has done. Um, and I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. You just heard Dr. David Schiffman, shark conservation biologist at the University of Miami, utilizing social media to spread the message of why sharks matter. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com. 
and visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. The Ocean and I greatly appreciate all of your support.